Albert Eugene Peck. Albert Eugene so, Peck. Yeah. Tell us a bit about your uh, childhood growing up and and uh, your early years in the church that led to your interest in Sunstone. Hmm. Well, I was born in Utah, but I spent my junior high and high school years in suburban Washington, D.C., which um, had a big influence on me. Uh, particularly, I, I got, uh, it awakened me intellectually and socially, particularly in my government and civics classes. So I, I so. Thomas Jefferson and people like that. And um, so I sort of became a child of the Enlightenment and uh, believed in pursuing truth wherever it went. And uh, I guess I was later influenced by um, the Vietnam War and Watergate, uh, events like that. Um, I went to BYU. Uh, so um, I don't know how far you want me to go. I, um, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Um, in your early years, let's say high school, early college, um, the, the faith of the testimony that you had, where was it rooted? Was it rooted in spiritual experience? Was it rooted in uh, sort of intellectual conviction? Was it rooted in just the culture and the heritage that you brought with you? Um, you know, the, the early testimony that you remember having, how was it composed or structured? I think primarily it was fundamentally social. I grew up in great wards with great mentors and scoutmasters, and I loved that community, and I loved the people, and, and I thought the church was true. Although um, I had, I guess, in my teenage years, a lot of um, cultivated um, spiritual experiences, like youth conferences and taking uh, family group trips to... Um, to church history sites in New York and places where we'd have little family group testimony meetings with about eight different families, and uh, those were all formative. So by the time I ended my teenage years, I knew the church was true, and I think I had a better-than-average understanding of the doctrines. I remember thinking at one point that it, I, had, I, I knew everything about the church, and it all made, it was logically consistent. Um, I wouldn't say I was an intellectual then, but I was intellectually curious. And um, when I hit BYU, I liked uh, thoughtful presentations. I sort of fell in love with Hugh Nibley. And I really liked the exploration of Mormon history and Mormon studies because it was just a, a learning more about how God works among our people and celebrating that. Um, so by the time I went on my mission in the mid-'70s, I discovered BYU studies and even subscribed to that while I was a missionary, which was like, I was the only person on my mission who really read that sort of stuff. Um, Where did you serve? Uh, California, Nevada. Um, which, which, just out of curiosity, which ward did you grow up in, in uh, the D.C. area? Uh, the McLean Ward and then the Vienna Ward. So Virginia. In Virginia, okay. yes, yes. Okay. Uh, um, so, did you? How was your mission? What was your mission like? Um, I, I guess I actually had two missions because I had a change of mission precedence. 
and a change of mission boundaries halfway through my mission. That gave me two missions and two mission presidents. Um, and it was a great experience. The first one was very strict and rule-bound, and I bristled under that. Uh, but I fell in love with the work and the people, and it was a great ocean of spirituality for me. And uh, the second part, um, I sort of, the new mission president kind of liked me. I was on a fast track of leadership, and I fell in love with the missionaries and moving the work of the mission. And, uh, and that was a great experience. I have no complaints about my mission. After your mission, did you return to BYU? Went back to BYU, um, took a bunch of honors classes, and that kind of piqued me intellectually. And... Um, ran into some friends who wanted to form a study group to study Mormon things, which interested me very much. And, uh, and uh, members of that group were uh, Gary Bergera and Ron Prittis, Scott Dunn, and uh, each time we met, people would have to make a presentation, we'd all rotate that, and Gary would read a paper that he was going to present at the Mormon History Association or Sunstone. We went as a group to my very first Sunstone meeting, and I was, wow, it was the second symposium ever held. And um, What year was that? Or era, you know, late, late 70s, early 80s? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, the first symposium was like 79, I think, so this may have been 1980. Okay. Um, and um, I remember someone pointing across... This was at the University of Utah, pro, pro, pointing across, across a plaza and saying, "That's Peggy Fletcher. She's the person who organized it." And like I was, wow, you know, she's a big person. And uh, later, a lot of members of that little group I belonged to started an independent newspaper at BYU called the Student, called excuse me, the Seventh East Press. And um, I, I was the first editor of that newspaper. And that was a sensation at BYU. We dealt with lots of intellectual issues. Gary Bergera wrote a theology column um, uh, for the newspaper. And I met a lot of BYU faculty and became um, close, more close to them than I ever did as a student. Who were some of these faculty at BYU that um, you met and were close with? That I got to know them? Yeah, yeah. Oh, uh, people like Arthur Bassett, even Don Norton, a very conservative person in the English department. It's where I first really met face-to-face Hugh Nibley. Um, who else did I meet there? I'd, once a week, or whenever we came out with a paper, we meant to be weekly, but we never were, um, I'd take a stack of them and go and deliver them to faculty's offices, and they all say, come in, come in, and sit me down and talk to me. Jim Faulkner would do that um, in political science, um, Lou Midgley would do that. Uh, a lot of these were very conservative people, but they celebrated the idea of a vibrant intellectual forum on campus by, run by students. And uh, who else? Got to know Maren Morrison and the student... Uh, mm. She ran the student programs for the university. Who... There were probably dozens of faculty. Uh, in the German department, got to know um, Alan Keel... Scott Abbott. I don't think Scott was there yet. I got to know him later. Um, it's where I first met Gene England. Um, Ted Lyon? No, I didn't know Ted Lyon. Okay, okay. Um, so, so BYU professors were actually, there was a number of them excited about the Seventh Express. They were, they were static about it, more so than the students were. I, I think the reverse was true with the paper that succeeded that, the student review, but 
here the faculty were just thrilled about it and encouraged us on in doing the Seventh East Press. And how many years did that go on while you were there, the Seventh East Press? I, I ran that for one for school, one full school year. And it was a traumatic thing. We lived in an apartment building. In the front room was the office of student review, so it was like 24 hours, and it was kind of sort of burning me out. But in the process of doing that, I, Peggy Fletcher, who was always looking for help at Sunstone, um, came down and kind of invited us up and met us, and we ran an interview with her in the, in the newspaper, and then um, she recruited me to come and work for her. So I left the Seventh East Press and went and worked for Peggy. She was having a second publication by Sunstone called the Sunstone Review, which was a combination book review and a news magazine, Mormon news magazine. She hired me to be the managing editor of it. So for another year, I was managing editor of that under Peggy Fletcher. And we ran a symposium in the summer. I was involved in that and uh, wrote my first editorial for the... Uh, for the Sunstone magazine, and um, was kind of tutored and mentored and became very good friends with Peggy in that process. And so that's how I came, ended up in Sunstone. I, I left doing student review and moved back to Washington, and where my family was still, and got a job there. I'd come out in the summers for the symposium, and I was listed in the masthead as a national correspondent. And once driving home from a symposium, uh, this was like in 85, I guess. Yes. No, 84. Uh, Jay Bybee and I were driving home from a symposium across the country, taking my brother's car home. And we were talking about how great the symposium was and how nice it would be have to have, to have one, one in Washington, D.C. So um, he was a columnist for Sunstone, and I'd worked for Peggy. And so um, we called her, and she gave us permission to organize what was the first regional Sunstone Symposium in Washington, D.C. And that was really a great event. We, um, three of us, Jay and I and a woman named Allison Bethke, um, met each week and came up with our dream team of who we want to speak and uh, found out all the Mormon intellectuals in Washington. And there were quite a few because Mary Bradford had run Dialogue from Washington. So she had quite a network that we hooked into as well as a lot of other people. And the three people we wanted to have were like Hugh Nibley and... Um, Jan Ships and Leonard Darrington, like the three big names back in the early mid-80s. And they all came. And, uh, and uh, we had 600 people there, and it was a wonderful event. And um, I planned it the next year. Uh, and by the time the one happened in the next year, I I'd agreed to come to Sunstone. Uh, as a full-time editor? Or yeah. As a, as a full-time employee? No, full-time editor. Pe Peggy had gotten married in the meantime, and decided, she, well, her husband decided he didn't want to be Mrs. Sunstone. And so they were leaving Sunstone. And she, she called me throughout the fall of um, 1985 and um, asking me to come and take over Sunstone from her. And I always told her no, because I'd seen how running, because she was publisher and editor, and running the business side and the editorial side had just ground her down and burnt her out. And I'd seen her spend... You know, it's 18 hours there, there 10 o'clock at night calling people on the phone, begging for money, and I mean, she, she just couldn't do it all, and I wasn't going to burn myself out like Peggy did. Um, what was your job before joining Sunstone full-time? Uh, I had a job in Montgomery County, Maryland, as a um, community planner for their city planning department. Okay. So, um, so what changed your mind about, about joining? <clears throat> Well, they, um, 
since I said no, in the meantime, they'd punted and invite, uh, hired Daniel Rector to be a half-time business manager for Sunstone. And um, since they didn't have anyone else really to turn to, they committed. They organized a group of four people to be head of the transition, four people from the board of trustees, uh, which included, like I think, John Ashton, Kent Frogley, um, Jay Bonaricci, and I can't remember who the fourth person was. Maybe Mary Beth Rains. Mm-hmm. Um, and so they had decided to basically turn Sunstone over to Daniel Rector. This. Tell us about Daniel. Daniel was a great guy. Never seen a person with more self-confidence and chutzpah. Really believed he could do almost anything. He had a strong interest in Mormon theology, and um, but as a career, he bounced around. He sold used cars. He sold this. He'd done this. He'd done this, and he sort of came to Sunstone just because he really needed a job. But he he, he liked Sunstone. Wasn't he the the son of someone prominent? Is that right? Yes, his father was Hartman Rector Jr., a member of the Seventy in the church. So his dad was a general authority. Which helped Daniel and hurt Daniel sometimes. So, um, uh, so Daniel agreed to do it. And a lot of people said, "Well, you need to get somebody. You need to get somebody. You need to get Elbert." And I was coming out for um, the Mormon History Association, which was being held in in Salt Lake. And at the night before the MHA, uh, Peggy was having her farewell banquet, which I was also going to go to. And they were also going to announce the new head of Sunstone, which would be Daniel. Um, so while there for that week, Daniel and Bonner Ritchie lobbied me very hard to come and take over, to be the editor of Sunstone. And if Peggy was publisher-editor, Daniel would be the publisher, I would be the editor. And um, Bonner was a person who I'd always respected so much. He'd given a talk that Sunstone published that had a huge impact on, on, on me. And Which talk was that? It's the Individual and Institutional Church. Um, it was a B.H. Roberts Society lecture that Peggy published. And um, so I pondered that whole thing. I, was, I prayed about it a lot. I remember during, once when I was walking around Temple Square, whether or not I should take Sunstone or not. It's just all to, you know, diverging career paths. Um, I was sitting down on, um, on a planter, and also in this pre-recorded music of the Tabernacle Choir started singing. And there was this hymn... Um, I can't remember the title of the hymn, but there's a line in it that says, within the kingdom of his might, all is good and all is right, something like that. And it just hit me that um, if I do Sunstone and it's within the kingdom, it's an acceptable choice. And then I felt this spiritual prompting that told me, um, it's okay to take Sunstone. It's not like God wanted me to take Sunstone, but it was an okay decision, as long as I um, continued on a spiritual path. And so I decided, okay, I'd do it. And I went and told them I'd do that. Um, we weren't very clear on the, on the delineation of duties. And, um, and, Dan, and I guess in pitching it to me, Daniel particularly had pushed that we'd be an equal team. He'd be publisher and I'd be editor. And uh, that caused a little friction later on because we hadn't clearly delineated that. Um, but um, so I came to Sunstone. And... Uh, Sunstone was broke and beaten up and had no money and uh, supporters were all disillusioned because the last year of Peggy's tenure she'd had no money and had been so burned out she'd come out with like two issues in a year 
And uh, what was what was the what were the subscription rates when you when you first joined? Do you remember roughly? Was it a thousand? Was it you know five hundred? Was it? No, it's probably. It may have been four thousand. Okay. Maybe three thousand something. Okay. Um, and in what ways was it a mess? Uh, or, or struggling, or sort of. Well, we had donors were disillusioned, thinking the organization was falling apart. In the years, of Peggy's last tenure, and the board of trustees and people trying to save Sunstone were thinking of like bagging the magazine all together and just having the symposium, which was a paid for itself money wise. And the magazine was a drag, and Peggy, this visionary, would plead and beg; she would not give up on the magazine. And so we inherited the magazine symposium, and we liked both of those, but there was like zero money, not only zero money, we were hugely in debt. Peggy, Daniel's first two years at Sunstone, or three years, was basically just paying off Peggy's debts. He, um, every time we'd go to a printer to print something, they'd say, oh yeah, you know, they'd, they'd tell us this after they accepted our printing job, they'd call us and say, We've discovered in our files that you guys owe us $5,000 for some old magazine which you never paid us for. You took the magazine and ran off on. And before we give you this current thing, well, you have to pay us for the old one. And, and Daniel was, I mean, that happened weekly. We were just paying huge sums. And once after the symposium, we had a ton of money, you know, for us, maybe $10,000 in the bank. And some old debt person we owed from uh, Arizona um, sequestered our funds, you know, and took them all from the, from the bank, and so we were broke after the symposium. And uh, and on top of that, we owed maybe sixty thousand dollars to the IRS, because Peggy, in trying to make ends meet, would choose to pay people's pay, weekly payroll rather than paying the IRS what she owed for deducting their taxes from their payroll. So um, we had a a demanding schedule that we had to meet to repay the IRS loan, and we had to get magazines out, had to be confident, and we had zero money. It was hard, and uh, we lived in a terrible place, and uh, we worked in a terrible place, and didn't have any money. And we're going working for almost nothing. How did you keep your spirits up? It was a cause. It was that was those were some of those best times of my life. It was really fun. And we, Daniel and I liked each other so much and worked so well. well I, I talked to him about the issues I was debating on the magazine. He cared so much about the magazine. We had great conversations, which really improved to have someone to talk to. And he was working with all the other issues. Fortunately, because of a previous job I had, I knew Database, which our subscribers list was on. Daniel knew nothing about it. So I was able to work on our subscriber list. And uh, Daniel would write fundraising letters and new subscription letters and run them by me. And we'd have, it was, it was a great collaborative experiment and experience. And uh, it was just great times with no money. And the wolf always beating at the door. So when you joined, did you have a hope or a vision or an aspiration? It doesn't need to contrast with what came before. Did you, did you have a hope or an aspiration or a vision that you wanted to carry forward? Or did you have a new vision or hope or aspiration that you wanted to sort of, you know, have as be as being your imprint for your tenure? 
Well, first of all, I just wanted to carry the torch very well because I'm in awe of Peggy Fletcher. She's one of my personal heroes. And um, she, had, she has this wonderful mind with great ideas, and she's always stretching further than she has the ability and resources. And I had caught on to so many of those ideas and wanted to help see them realized. And Scott Kenny, I didn't know personally when he came, but I also held him in awe. So part of it was just carrying the tradition. And... Um, but there were some things I wanted to do, uh, which were not that unusual from what people had done before. I had be- developed a great interest in biblical scholarship and wanted to introduce more of Mormonism to that. Peggy and Scott had both had similar interest in that. And Daniel had an interest in that. So we instituted a, a scripture a lecture series that met uh, once a month and went along with the church's curriculum, and we brought in critical studies into scripture studies, both the Bible, Book of Mormon, Doctrine and Covenants, and um, the, the, that was something we both loved doing, and it was really fun. And, it, and um, I like, I mean, it's, people always think they're trying to reinvent this, but it's, it's a continued problem. I wanted to bring in more, um, what I guess gets classified as faithful voices to Sunstone, than... Um, than Peggy was able to do. And I was able to do that because I'd been at BYU so much involved with 70s press and stuff, I knew a lot of these faculty members. So those first few years, we signed up tons, dozens and dozens of BYU faculty members for the symposium program and got them to write and speak for for the magazine. Even Hugh Nibley, who uh, was willing to do magazine and Sunstone sessions. And um, Who are some of the faithful voices that that you could really rely upon or that you felt were an important balance to the to the more liberal left-leaning aspects of Sunstone. Yeah, well, that's a bad dichotomy, as you no doubt realize, yes. liberal-faithful. Because <laughs> Gene England's very liberal and he's very faithful. And um, at that time, Gene was participating more in Sunstone than he'd ever done before for his own quirky dynamics. Um, but, um, <clears throat> well, uh, people like David Whitaker and the... And the BYU archives who dealt with the Mormon collection, people like Jim Faulkner, people like Art Bassett in humanities, Jim Faulkner in philosophy, um, even Lou Midgley would participate, even uh, um, people in the history department, uh, and, and some people from the Smith Institute, uh, Jill Durr would participate. Um, you just go through a symposium program, there were a lot. There were. Time it, and they'd write, they'd write book reviews for us, they'd write articles, they'd speak at the symposium, they'd respond to sessions in the symposium. It was really fairly easy in those late 1980s to get BYU people involved, which is part of my vision, Daniel's vision, was to have that. We kind of wanted everyone who had an intellectual interest in Mormonism to be in the tent, talking to each other and listening to each other. I sort of believe that that's um, a naive philosophy, but it certainly was my guiding philosophy on that. In terms of other things I did at Sunstone um, in those early years, we revived a lot of traditions that I liked that had been dropped um, by whatever reason over the years. Like in the early Sunstones, they would regularly publish plays, and they hadn't in the last half decade. And so we revived the publishing of plays, and we um, published more poems than had been published in the past, and found ways to frame them so that they... They used to dedicate a whole page to a poem in a magazine, which meant you couldn't get print many poems because you couldn't dedicate many pages to a whole poem. But by creating space at the end of articles, we could do more poems. 
poems. Um, once Gene England criticized me for just using poems as filler, and uh, that hurt because I we were working very hard to create space to put poems in. So then we came up with the idea of putting icons on top of the poems and putting more blank space around them to make it to frame the poem better, so it wouldn't look like we were just using them as filler. Um, um, there are a bunch of other magazine things that we did, uh, that we re old traditions that we revived. Um, oh, I guess one of the things wasn't new to Sunstone, but was new, really new to the magazine was cartoons. Sunstone under Peggy had published three cartoon books by Calvin Grandal, um, but he wasn't a regular feature in the magazine. And we recruited Pat Bagley and Calvin Grandal to be to have car Mormon cartoons in each issue, and then we had put tons of other cartoons. That, that was a major contribution of ours. Are there any cartoons that stand out as your favorite, or that you really, uh, we, we could probably go back and interlay some of them over your description of them, that's putting you on the spot, but no. no. Yeah, well, car cartoons actually became one of our most controversial problems, uh, but um, I know I just left a lot of Cal Grandal, so it's, they're, Tons of them. I, I, so, what what role was you were you hoping Sunstone would play within Mormonism? What was your vision for its? You know, let's say that in in a soup, there's salt and there's carrots and there's beef or whatever. There are lots of ingredients. What was the role that Sunstone played in the ingredients to Mormon culture or the Mormon experience? I came to articulate this more later, but it was inherent in my early approach. It was the idea of an open forum, uh, which was um, a place where people can come and speak truth as they understand it, scholars and laity, people who have experiential truth to tell, and people who have academic research, and non-Mormons who are interested in Mormon studies or who can do reflections to, to bring them uh, on us that will help us. And, and in that discussion, by people who up be belief and people who, are, who do not believe, but honest civil discussion, it can produce some fruits that might be helpful to Mormonism. But we really didn't have, and I didn't have, a study in the ark like the church needs this, although I believe the church needs something like that. It was primarily for the people who'd be interested in this. I always believed that the, the, the subset of Mormonism that would, should, that would be interested in this would be, should grow and grow and grow because the number of college-educated Mormons each year were growing and growing. And even if we just took a few of those who had true intellectual curiosity, Sunstone should be on a growth track. And um, that sort of played out a little bit in the, in the late 80s when we, when we came. I came in 86, Daniel and I came. And, uh, and, and Daniel was rig rigorous in trying to get new subscribers and would send out these promotional letters and bring them in and it was bringing in money and we were growing and growing at our peak about the time Daniel left um, or just before, a year before he left I guess um, we had 10,000 subscribers and um, a lot of those came from um, we, we published this issue when a Apostle Native American George P. Lee, no, Apostle 70, uh, quit the church. And he, he, listened, he wrote a handwritten manifesto of while he was, why he was leaving and criticized the church. And um, because we're also kind of have a, have a news portion of the, of the, of the magazine, and, uh, certainly I felt a need to sort of be a magazine of record for the important things that happened. 
we published George Lee's letters, which in my mind were really kind of crazy, but it showed people what a crazy guy he was. Well, it turns out tons of Mormons wanted to read those letters, very faithful Mormons, and they were willing to plunk down $30 for a subscription just to get the issue that had the George P. Lee letters. It was pre-internet days, you know, they couldn't read them online. And uh, we got several thousand subscribers just from that promotion. In fact, that may be the only issue of Sunstone that was reprinted. We printed it again to use it just as a promotional magazine. So the newspapers wouldn't print them? Uh, well, they, they printed excerpts from them, but they didn't print the entire things. It was like a long, long thing. And... Uh, and, uh, and that was very helpful and brought in tons of subscribers. A couple of years later, um, the, the journalist um, Lynn Packer came, wrote his article about Paul Dunn and his, his fabricated stories. And Sunstone has an intimate uh, history involved in that. I'd heard through rumors at BYU that Lynn Packer because he used to be, he was once a journalist and professor at BYU, that he had all this stuff on on Boyd K. Packer, on, on Paul Dunn, and I asked him to um, to come and present it at the symposium, and he sent us this paper, which was just this angry diatribe full of facts, but he'd call him liar, liar, pants on fire in the paper and stuff, and Daniel and I didn't feel like we could just let him speak that tone uh, of attack about Paul Dunn. It needed to be more dispassionate journalism. So we didn't let him give, give the paper at the symposium. Um, and Lynn, being a good journalist, sold his research basically to the Arizona Republic. And they bought his research and his information and wrote their own story rather than going with his. And um, when, the, when the story broke, then we decided to be what Sunstone does best perhaps, rather than a breaking news journal, which we're not, um, a reflective uh, voice. So we took the, uh, took the um, Lynn Packer article, that, which had more than the Arizona Republic s- series did, and we edited it down, and then we reprinted the Arizona Republic things, and then we invited a bunch of people to reflect on the, Lynn pa- on the, um, on the Paul Dunn stories from many different angles. We had a person who's in the English department in Iowa, who's not a Mormon, who's dealt with how people tell stories and they're full of non-truths. And we had Mormon historians and man in the street and lots of different um, people reflect on it, which made the, the, the segment on Paul Dunn grew and grew and grew so much that it was um, very large. And so we put it on, on the cover. And then, and this was also in pre-internet days, there were all these jokes that were running around about Paul Dunn because of this. And people didn't have the internet, but fax machines were very popular then. And so they were like a Mormon samizdat, where they were, these cartoons were being faxed all around the church. And um, so we thought we would document that part of this Mormon subculture of the Paul Dunn episode. And because the thing had taken so much space, I didn't want to dedicate a page or two more to, to the Paul Dunn things. And we had a lot of empty space at the end of all these little articles we had about Paul Dunn. So I spread the cartoons out. And in, in our introductory part of that, we said these cartoons are here just to document what was happening at the time, and we're just reproducing them. We, we didn't commission them. Well, no one reads the introductory thing. And, uh, and um, 
that Daniel printed a huge number of that Paul Dunn issue, thinking that it would be a great promotional issue the way the George P. Lee one had been. And lots of people got upset, both about the, the volume of space of the magazine we dedicated to it. They thought, and, but they were just also mad about any discussion of Paul Dunn. And then the cartoons made them think that we were attacking Paul Dunn, and that was our motives. And uh, so people were like mad at us for beating up on Paul Dunn. And I guess there's a big difference between being an excommunicated general authority, who people didn't have such an emotional attachment to, like they did with Paul Dunn, and and if he's excommunicated, George, then, Lee? George, George, George Lee, yeah, oh, George Lee, they didn't have the emotional attachment like they did with Paul Dunn, who'd been a very popular speaker for decades. Well, it's just fellowship or censured, but not. Yeah, whatever. We don't know the actual discipline on him, but 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 he wasn't excommunicated at least publicly, and uh, so. George P. Lee's excommunicated, so you can find out the dirt about that scoundrel. But Paul Dunn's a little more questionable, and you'd like him better anyhow. And, uh, and so people are mad at you, and he's not excommunicated. Had he been excommunicated, they may, and, and publicly it's known that, known that that was the case, they may have um, welcomed. welcomed the issue, but they didn't. So we got people canceling subscriptions over that. And, and when Daniel sent out this promotional letter, which was like the same letter that he'd sent out with George P. Lee, except changing Paul Dunn for George P. Lee, we had a week where the off, we couldn't do anything in the office except field phone calls from people who weren't subscribers but were just mad at us. And they were calling on a toll-free 800 number, which was costing us money, and they just yelled at us. And there were like four, four or five of us in the office all the time, always taking phone calls for this whole week from people who were just furious at us for that issue. So you felt, I mean, there's a sense to where you could look at that as it's like the buzzards or the vultures circling on the carcass, you know. I'm sure that wasn't your intent, but I'm sure it could have easily been viewed. Some people, well, and the people who were calling us were not subscribers. They were the average member whose names, Daniel would acquire these mailing list names. He'd like get, there was a very Mormon magazine called This People, and he'd trade and get their subscriber list. And then he'd get the BYU Studies list. And then he'd get, he just got a lot, every mainstream kind of Mormon list he could get, we would send promotional letters to, inviting them to take Sunstone. So these were people who, many of them had never read a Sunstone before, but they read this promotional letter. And they do think we're a buzzard taking advantage of him. Um, I'm actually proud of the content of that issue. I think the collection of essays are, are reflective and sensitive and, and very good on the topic. Even some of our best supporters, though, however, thought it was uh, too much. It was a dispro disproportionate uh, for, for, the, for the issue. Um, I see, even after all the years and really thinking about those, I, I don't think that was the case. I think it was an important issue that really needed to discuss, be discussed. And Sunstone was the only place that it was discussed. And that is one of the main jobs that Sunstone does. It allows for that kind of discussion on issues that are basically taboo. Newspapers report it when it happens and then move on. And where else is there a reflective forum? Certainly before the internet, there was no other place but Sunstone. And, uh, and it did a good job, I think. Teach me to walk in the light of his love. Teach me to pray to my Father me to know all the things that are right. Teach me, teach me to walk in the light.
child and together we'll learn of his commandments that we may return home to his presence to live in his sight always always to walk in the Will walk.